0: Okay, so we've been looking in the book of of Nehemiah for some weeks now. I'm going to read in just a moment the whole of chapter 9, although in effect chapter 9 and 10 belong together, the same event, the same occasion. They're recording, as it were, events from the same day. Um, and therefore we will, during the message, dip into chapter 10, but I'm going to just read for now uh, just... Uh, chapter nine. Okay, so if you're ready, here we go. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God, standing on the stairs were the Levites: Yeshua, Barney, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherabiah, Barney, and <laughs> Kenani. Sorry, <laughs> Bunny. Goodness me. <laughs> It's not supposed to be funny. This wasn't a funny day. Um, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmi, Albani, Hashbaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord." You made the heavens even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You're the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you. And you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You've kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, "'like a stone into mighty waters. "'By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, "'and by night with a pillar of fire "'to give them light on the way they were to take. "'You came down on Mount Sinai "'and spoke to them from heaven. "'You gave them regulations and laws "'that are just and right, "'and decrees and commands that are good. "'You made known to them your holy Sabbath "'and gave them commands, decrees, and laws "'through your servant Moses.' In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow in anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is our God who brought uh, uh, you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manner from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Basham. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told your fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the, hand, in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased." They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They "'Killed your prophets who'd admonished them in order to turn them back to you. "'They committed awful blasphemies, "'so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. "'But even when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. "'From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion "'you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. "'But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight.' Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the the neighboring people. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship... That has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You've acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we're slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruits and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvests to the... goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. There we go. So that is the whole of chapter 9. Like I say, we'll look into... Uh, chapter 10. Uh, in a little while, it refers there in the very last verse of chapter 9 to this binding agreement. That's what's detailed in chapter 10, which we'll uh, look at a little bit later. But what we're seeing here, indeed, what we already had begun to see in chapter 8 a few weeks back, just before Easter, is really a time of national revival. And so, there's been this season of festivities. The people have gathered together in Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem have now been rebuilt. But in other ways, the city still lies in uh, ruin. Uh, the evidence of their poverty lies all around them. They are still re- effectively enslaved um, and subject to the kings of another nation. And yet they're called to this day of great celebration. We saw that in chapter, uh, in chapter 8, where they're... They're listening to and hearing God's law, and they're delighted. And it almost it prompts in them a grief. It prompts in them mourning for their sin, for all the consequences of their wrongdoing. And yet um, Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the others kind of interrupt the people and say, No, don't mourn. Don't grieve. This is to be a holy day. This is a day which is sacred to our God. And even the word of God um, commands us to celebrate. And so that's what we're going to do. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength. We're going to celebrate the feast. And therefore, for, for not just one day, but for several days, the people gather together, they eat, have just fellowship and fun, and they're hearing God's word every day as they're gathered to that feast. And the end of chapter 8 tells us uh, more about the, the the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, they realize, is one particular feast uh, that's that's spoken of in God's Word. And so they celebrate that as well. And so there's a, a time of great revival, joyful celebration, uh, a party, really, And yet there is now a time where it is appropriate to confess sin, to repent. So it's almost like they get to the end of this season of festivity and feasting. And it's like, but if you want to, there's this extra day. And they've organized an extra day. And the extra day is a day for radical repentance. And radical recommitment to God. And that's what chapter 9 and 10 detail. This day of radical repentance. Why is it radical? Well, it's radical because it's genuine. It's unmixed. It's unrestrained. There are no half measures here. So it's not like the famous worship song, which could be horrendously doctored. I surrender some. I surrender some half to Jesus. It's not that. This is absolutely everything. They are repenting. What's repentance? It's a complete turning to God. We have been heading in this direction. We have in life been doing what we think is best. We have been living our own way. We have made ourselves to be king and queen of our lives. But now we realize we have led ourselves astray. And so we are turning around completely, now humbly coming before God to say, we're not the king. I'm not the queen. I'm not the ruler of my own life. It's not me who is to decide what is right and what is good and what is holy and what is appropriate. It's him. It's God. It's you, Lord. You're the one. You're the God of heaven and earth. You created everything. You created me. And you are worthy to determine what is right and holy. You define it. And so now, Lord, I'm repenting and I'm coming to you. I'm turning around completely. We, as a whole nation, are turning around completely from the way that we have been and the way that we have turned away from you. And now we're saying, no, we're living to serve you interesting what Ben brought earlier on about what the blood of Jesus has achieved in, in cleansing us from guilt, in, in cleansing us from all filthy stains. What's one of the key purposes for which God has been delighted to do that, to release us from guilt, to release us from condemn- condemnation, is that we might serve him. It's that we might turn to him completely and say, in my marriage, in my money, uh, with life in this community and in this place, all of my life is to be of service to you, O oh God, however you see fit you 're free, O oh Lord, to to lead me and guide me in the ways that you want me to serve you and that 's a privileged and wonderful position to be in so this is a day of radical repentance and we're going to see as we kind of follow through the story as we look through these chapters we're going to see well what is radical repentance about what does it lead to what does it involve what does it entail what do we learn about radical repentance from this chapter and the first thing is that repentance is fruitful it's it's a good thing it holds promise It's not a dead end, but it's a route through to a more fruitful life. Why is that? Well, often in Scripture we see that when God is doing a new thing, or about to do a new thing, when he's moving upon his people in a fresh way, he often brings in, at the very outset of it, a time of repentance. We've seen this personally, in the life of Nehemiah. Already. Because if you ch- turn back to chapter 1. We see not the nation's prayer. We just see one man's prayer. We see Nehemiah's prayer. It's interesting to compare and contrast the two. He prays in chapter 1 verse, w- verse 5. Oh Lord God of heaven. The great and awesome God. Who keeps his covenant of love. With those who love him and obey his commands. So much. Similarity already with the prayer then that the whole nation is praying here in chapter nine. He uh, prays partway through uh, verse six. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. He's not just, he's not just kind of praying on behalf of other people who need to turn back to God. We saw there right at the outset of this book, right at the outset of this adventure that Nehemiah got down and prayed and he confessed and he repented. What happens next? A few months later, God opens the way for him to be sent hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to galvanize God's people and to lead them in rebuilding the walls. Started with confession. It started with repentance and then God says, and this is the way I want you to serve me. This is the way I'm going to open up for you to serve in my purposes. See, I've got a place for you. I've appointed you to go and bear much fruit. Jerusalem, go. Walls, rebuild them. People, gather them and inspire them and lead them because I've got great plans for them. So that's what's happened in Nehemiah. He's got before God and he's repented and the walls are now built. There's fruits, there's progress, there's God's kingdom advancing. Not only that, but I just think it's wonderful that what God has done in him as an individual, now God is doing in the whole nation. They are coming before the God of heaven And earth. And they are confessing their sin because God has appointed them all to go and bear much fruit. God has chosen them with specific purpose in mind to serve Him. And that's what we'll, we'll see. We see it elsewhere in scripture. We see it in Matthew uh, chapter three when God is doing or about to do a new thing he often clears the way with a day or a time of radical repentance. And so there in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, and in the other Gospels as well, we're told of Jesus coming, the Son of God, God himself, stepping down from heaven to earth, taking on our humanity, becoming like us, so that he can bring in, usher in his kingdom. Now what happens at the outset? Well, in, in Matthew chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist. And so we're told there that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So what's this preparation? Well, God sends someone ahead of Jesus. He sends John the Baptist to go and prepare the way, to go and clear the ground. And what does that mean? What's that clearing the ground about? It's about, come on, repent. Get right with God because he's coming. He's about to arrive and he's going to lead us into something simply wonderful. So turn, turn from yourself as king and turn towards God um, afresh. So people go out to John the Baptist confessing their sin and getting baptized, which is interesting. What is baptism about? Well, at this point in the people's history, baptism is what non-Jewish people did. It's what Gentile people did when they wanted to become one of God's people. So someone who was not Jewish by birth would come and say, I want to serve, I want to follow, I believe in and I want to be included as part of the people of Israel, the God of Israel. I recognize that he is the one and only God and I want to follow him. And so Gentile people would be baptized. They would get totally saturated in water because they were saying, We're not right with God. I'm a Gentile, but I've seen the God of Israel, and I I worship him. I'm not right with him, but I'm going to repent and get baptized to turn to him. So what's remarkable about what was happening in John the Baptist's day was that it was God's people. It was Jewish people. It was people who could already say who their God was. It was them saying, we're not right with you, God. The fact that we have been born into this nation, the fact that we have, the men at least, on our body, the mark, the sign of God's covenant, the fact that we descend from Abraham is not sufficient for us to be right with God. We know we're not right with you, Lord. And so we are going to humble ourselves and we're going to get baptized. Incidentally, that in itself is a very powerful argument For why, if somebody has been christened as a baby, they should actually follow through and get baptised in water. They had the mark, they had a sign performed that some would believe is indicating they're part of the community of God's people. As a baby, as a statement of faith, parents decided to uh, have their baby christened. Fine. But later on, it's also good to say, actually, now... The fact that that has happened might be helpful, but that is not what justifies me. I'm not right with God because of what happened when I was a baby. And so I'm going to get baptized as a believer now, um, as an adult doesn't discredit what believing parents would have decided beforehand, but it's about saying, I need to get right with God. I need to, or I I need to reflect publicly the fact that I have got right with him by believing in Jesus. Aside over, uh, so we've got these people confessing their sins and coming to him, preparing the way. John has got some pretty robust things to say uh, to some of them. So Matthew three and verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, again, we see there, repentance is about fruitfulness. Repentance should lead to bearing fruit for God. It should be evident. Repentance has happened because the tree has changed. And so, uh, John the Baptist sees these these Pharisees and Sadducees, and uh, he's, he's challenging them. If you're repentant, if you've turned away from sin, surely... That will be evident in some way. In our garden, uh, Rachel and I have uh, a tree. And it was, it's quite big. Um, and a little while ago, we had a tree surgeon come and just kind of thin out some of the branches, um, just give it a slightly better shape. It was kind of blocking so much light, so we thought it would be helpful just to thin out some of the branches. Um, obviously, we'd still like to have the tree. Wrapped around the trunk of the tree, and growing up the tree, was a different plant. was lots and lots of ivy. So the whole trunk of the tree was invisible, because you could just see the leaves of the ivy. And those leaves were stretching up other branches too. We kind of thought, well that looks okay, we don't mind. Kind of gives it a slightly pretty look, uh, when the whole uh, tree is in leaf, um, and we had a chat with the tree surgeon about it, and we thought we'd said, "Don't worry about the ivy, leave the ivy where it is. If it becomes a problem, we will cut it down in future years." That's what we thought we'd said. Now the tree surgeon cut the ivy down anyway. We're like, oh no! Uh, can we sew it back in? No, it's not that um, a bigger deal. But there's a tree with ivy growing now. If that ivy had stayed there and it continued to grow, what will have happened to the tree? It would die. On your way home, take a look at Carmel Court, just down the hill here. There is a big tree in the corner, which is not yet in leaf, but increasingly the the tree up the trunk and around the branches is enveloped by ivy. If that continues, then that tree would die, um, and it would no longer bear any fruit whatsoever. That is an illustration of what sin does in our lives and why God wants it wants us to cut it out. So we were thinking, oh, we've got more time. It's okay. The ivy can continue to grow. Maybe the tree surgeon just happened to know better. There is just no point having this here. It will limit. It is entangling the tree. It is hindering the growth and the fruitfulness of the tree. So as long as it is there, that tree is going to be hampered. And so cut the ivy down and the tree is more healthy. That's what's going on here. Repentance is to lead to fruitfulness. The reason God brings it to our attention sometime is because he's got something far better in store. It's like, prepare the way, get rid, cut it down, kill it completely, make a change, turn around, because... I've got fruit for you to bear. Well, that's one way in which Peter, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 3, he said, you know, repent so that times of refreshing from the Lord might come upon you. It holds promise of fruitfulness. Repentance then is actually exciting. What is, going, what is God going to do as a result of the fact we've just turned away from? This particular bad attitude or this evil habit, whatever it might be, repentance, as we see here uh, back in Nehemiah uh, chapter nine, the repentance that we see here is not only fruitful but it is also faith filled It is full of faith. What do I mean? We've observed before that there's a slightly funny order to these few chapters. The people have returned to the land, then they're told to celebrate for quite a few days, and only after that are they led in a day of repentance. Surely we'd think, okay, first of all, you repent, and then you return to God as a result, and then you've kind of got permission to be joyful. It's totally turned on its head. We see the same pattern uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. The, The wasteful son who'd gone off, squandered half his father's wealth, and then came back home, tail between his legs. What happened first? Well, first, he returned. Second, the father threw a party. And by implication, third, he then lived out a new lifestyle. He then demonstrated by his fruits that he'd turned away from his old life. Returned, then celebrate, then repent. That's what's happened here. Why is that helpful? Well, the benefit of all of that is that in all this season of feasting, daily, they have been taught, they have been hearing the book. They've been hearing the book of the law of Moses. They've been hearing the whole story of God's dealings with his people all the way from creation until the present day. And there's been all of these kind of little pauses as the the book would be read and then the Levites and the priests and others would just spend a few uh, moments explaining it um, so that the people could understand it, so that people could uh, could digest, so that people could get get, get to grips with what it was about. So now... On this day of radical repentance, the people, are, they've been saturated with truth. They've been saturated in uh, the word. And so they're now familiar with the whole of what God has been doing. The whole story. Um, and that's really repeat, kind of reflected in their prayer. Their prayer goes through all different stages of God's dealing with his people. Starting with creation, going all the way through to the present day. So their prayer is, is saturated with what they've been hearing. And so those repeated readings from the book were bearing fruit. And what that means is that whilst being truly cut to the heart, that, that mourning, that grieving for the consequences of their sin, whilst that is there, because they're so saturated in the word, they 're not left in hopelessness or despair or just a heavy sense of condemnation that is just leading them down a dead end, so their confession is not just oh we 've sinned, oh, we are rubbish, oh, we are so bad, leading to kind of just a a hopelessness no they they are cut to the heart but their prayer demonstrates what we could call a double confession firstly they're confessing who are we and what have we done now another time you can read through the whole prayer again and just look through and list what are all the things that God's people were confessing that they had done, like killing the prophets and so on. But the one thing I just wanted to bring attention to for now is a, is a word or a phrase that's repeated a couple of times. You might have noticed it, stiff-necked. See it in verse uh 16, but they, our forefathers became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. Just one verse later, verse 17, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And uh, also we see, I think, for the third time in verse 28, uh, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then uh, you abandoned, am I on the right track here or have I jotted down the wrong verse? Somewhere, in verse 29, woo, uh, right at the end, stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. It means they hardened their necks. It's as though all through their history, God has been saying, come on, come back, come back, come, to, return, return to my word, return to my covenant. Come back. And it's as if God's people are saying, no. No, we're, we're turning this way. And we're, we're keeping our neck nice and firm, totally looking the other way. And so what does that result in? Well, verse 26, they were disobedient, rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. God had given it to them. They put it behind them. They didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to be reminded, uh, they didn't want to be reminded of it. In verse 34, we hear, our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Don't go that way. Don't follow those gods. Don't abandon my word. But they were stiff-necked. We've set our course, and it's the other way. They were determined to ignore God. That's what they're confessing. We've been stiff-necked. We are a stiff-necked people. We have made rebellion our knee-jerk response in the midst of uh, of crisis. So they are acknowledging their sin, but at the same time they're not wallowing in self-pity this is faith-filled repentance because they are not only confessing their faults they're not only confessing what they are like but as you read through the, the prayer you'll see they are confessing who God is they're confessing what God has done and what God is like. Read through the prayer at your own leisure. You can pick out a whole raft of things, different things that God did at different points in their history. I'm going to pick out just one word that describes what God has been like all the way through the history of the people of God and it's this word, compassion. God has had compassion or he has been compassionate. Again, we saw that in verse 17 They refused to listen, became stiff-necked, and so on. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Uh, Also, we see in verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in uh, the deserts. And I think that's what we see in verse uh, 28, where I went by mistake earlier on. Partway through that verse. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. Now it's interesting, behind that word stiff-necked is that sense of hardness. So in the book of Hebrews we're told, don't, don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. You know, be, kind of encourage one another daily so that none of you is hardened by a sin's deceitfulness. We can become hard on the inside, hard in our behavior, hard in our attitudes, hard in justifying ourselves. Now, it's, it's okay for me to go this way. We compromise our conscience and we, we head where we think is best, but really there's this niggling doubt to suspicion I don't think God likes this. I don't think this reflects his desires. This is not going to lead towards fruitfulness, but I've hardened my heart, I've hardened my neck, and I'm going this way, and almost now I don't seem to be able to get myself out of that response. It's going to take a bit to soften this. What's God like? God's compassionate. What's behind that word is a sense of softness, gentleness, tenderness. God is tender, Come back. Come back. I've not abandoned you. Even though you've turned away from me again, I'm bringing you back. Even though you've turned to me again, I'm, I'm bringing you back. I'm going to be generous towards you, patient towards you. I'm going to bless you with this prosperity. And then suddenly, ah, we're fine. Everything's okay. We're, life is at rest. We're not threatened by any foreign enemy anymore. God has delivered us. Right. Right. Where do we want to go? And the stiff neck comes, uh, or came, in their case, came back in. So we're seeing that God is completely different. Sin abounded. God in His grace, His grace abounds even more. So they have this, this growing faith. Repentance is going to lead to fruits. God is a God who is wanting to restore he's wanting to bestow good things he's wanting to enable us to serve him again just going back to ben's encouragement sometimes it can be that sense of guilt sin that's being allowed to linger which is like that ivy Wrapping itself around the tree trunk, wrapping itself up the branches, hindering the tree, which is therefore bearing less fruit. And so, if sin goes unchecked in our lives, we don't feel able to serve. Or if the sin's been forgiven and it's been dealt with, but we've still got that lingering sense of of of, of guilt and condemnation that actually God has taken away, we we just ah oh, we, we're still kind of restricted, bound up. Uh, with guilt. God wants us to be free from that. And so this faith, faith faith-filled repentance is emerging because the people have just been absolutely saturating themselves in God's word. It's been leading them to faith. A great question for uh, core group discussions this week could be, how are you doing personally at getting into the word of God? Are, how, how saturated are you feeling, and and what have you found to be particularly helpful in looking at, reading, understanding for yourself, and growing in an appreciation of God's Word? Now, if your corporate reader happens to ask that question, it is not an opportunity for arrogance. Well, yes, you see, now uh, I do have quite a large shelf. Of books at home. I have commentaries on most things. I can recite them. And so what I have found particularly helpful in all of my great experience of reading the Bible is, oh, be quiet. (laughs) We can't say that. (laughs) The Bible is a wonderful book, collection of books, written mostly in excess of 2,000 years ago to people uh, at the time... Of a foreign culture to us. All of us, at one way or another, do not necessarily find reading the Bible easy. We need help. If we're gonna grow in faith, what we need to do is be helping one another. Looking at a passage of scripture, looking at a passage from the, from the, uh, from the gospels, for example, say, actually, how can we, how can we understand this? How can we access it how can we appreciate what was going on and what was meant by this to its uh, original participants or to the people who are originally uh, receiving and listening to this word and therefore how today in the UK in the 21st century can we benefit from it too that we help each other then in God's word build faith and faith in this situation that is leading to repentance thirdly As we come towards a close, we see that this repentance, as well as being fruitful, as well as being full of faith, is also very focused. And this is where, in particular, we turn to chapter 10. We saw right at the end of chapter 9, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites and our priests are fixing their seals to it. We then get the list of names and a description of what was entailed by this binding agreement. And this puts in writing five particular changes, five particular areas of life where the people knew things had to be different and they needed to repent. That there needed to be genuine change and transformation. It wasn't them... Picking and choosing the bits of the law that they preferred to keep in order to ignore the rest. It was actually the people of God saying, here are the five areas where we know we've been particularly weak. These are the five changes we know with God's help we need to make. This is where we've been prone. This is where we have been liable to slip up. And so they take deliberate action on their five points of weakness. We're not going to look at them in particular, but just to give the headings, they're making kind of these new commitments in the area of honoring marriage, honoring the Sabbath, protecting the poor, dedicating the firstborn of their own children, which would be dedicated by, by paying a price at the temple, and dedicating... The, the firstborn of their livestock, which would be dedicated by sacrificing at the temple. And uh, fifthly, uh, the fifth area was giving, uh, giving to support uh, the work of the temple. So giving tithes, giving wood uh, in order to kind of make the sacrifices possible and so on. So they were saying, we know these are the five key areas uh, where we have been weak that has then led us astray and they took deliberate action. Sometimes repentance can be unfruitful because we don't make it specific or take deliberate action. What we do is just rehearse the fact that we've messed up. Lord, we've messed up. Forgive us. Lord, we've messed up again. Would you believe it? In the same area. Please forgive us. Lord God, I've messed up again. In the same area. God's purpose for us is not that we go round and round a revolving door of being tempted in the same issue, confessing it, not really doing anything about it though, and then heading back into it so that the the same temptation will come, and so we trip in the same way. Repentance is fruitful. The gospel is good news. The Christian life was not designed to be a a going around a revolving door on the same issues. It's that we might repent, that we might confess, that we might receive His forgiveness. We might know all that He's done for us. We might enjoy it to the full as we've been doing this morning. He's paid it all. Where's that leading? It's, It's leading us into a freedom. Sin is no longer my master. I've been freed from that. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been united with him in his death so that this body of sin might be made inert. Might be made kind of powerless. That my body that tells me to sin would be made weak. Why? In order that I might live for God. My old self has died. I have a new Nature. In my new nature, by the grace of God, sin is not my master. Sin will still come along and attempt to trip me up. It may come upon me every day with the same temptation. Or well, every day with the same temptation, by the Spirit of God, I am enabled to say no. I'm enabled to say no. I'm walking free. I've got a new master. I have a new nature. Temptation is real. But God's grace is as well. And so the Christian message is not come to Jesus, be forgiven all of your sins. But obviously it's always going to be pretty naff. And we're we're always going to stumble on the same points. We'll never be perfect in this life. But God does actually want to sanctify us. He does actually want to free us from the encircling, entangling ivy that can grow around the tree to bring Death. That's what we see in the book of uh, Book of James. His encouragement there in chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So we were thinking that ivy, it can just continue to grow for another year. It'll be okay. I think we've still got time to 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 kind of enjoy it, then cut it down so that the tree can still be healthy. And so you could read that passage and say, Oh, yeah, yeah, but sin isn't full grown yet. I'm okay. It's my evil desire has enticed me, it's dragged me away, and it has conceived sin in me. Ah, but it's not full grown. So it's all right. I'm one of God's people, and I have been forgiven, so I can accommodate this in my life. I don't think James is writing that passage in order to say, allow sin to get so big that just before it's full grown, you try and chop it down. I think it's there so that we're encouraged, when I'm enticed, chop it down. When the evil desire comes, chop it down. When I sin, chop it down. If it's gone so far as I have allowed it to grow a little bit, chop it down today. If it's grown really big, chop it down today. Because when it gets full grown, it will lead to destruction. When it gets full grown, the tree will die. So repentance is focused. It takes the axe, not to the tree itself, But the ivy that's growing up it, right, let's get rid of it today. I think what dissuades us from doing that is we don't want people then to look at us and say, wow, you've made a really specific change in your life. Why is that? When we saw the tree in our garden, it kind of looked bare, a bit ugly. It had been encased in these lovely leaves. When they were taken down, you could kind of see black shadows up the trunk where the ivy had been growing. I thought, wow, oh, it looks a bit stark. And so we might think, you know, someone might say, well, why don't you come clubbing with us now? Now, club, clubbing in itself might not be a sin for you, but it might be. Well, actually, the reason is, I've tended to drink too much. And, um, and when I drink too much, I then tend to do things of which I'm now ashamed. And so I've taken deliberate action. I'm not going at all. Now maybe in the future God brings it to a point where it's not a point of weakness, it's not a point of vulnerability, and like I say, going to a nightclub in itself is not going to be sinful, so okay, right, you might go once in a while, but if the pattern has become established where it just leads to compromise, sin, and guilt, we will try and encourage ourselves, I can handle it, I can kind of chop down the issue without it appearing very different. And so we talk ourselves out of deliberate action. But radical repentance involves chopping something down. It involves deliberate action. Why don't you walk to school with us now? Well, and I appreciate these might not actually be conversations that are helpful to have. This response might not be helpful to make. Nevertheless, well, because... When I hang out with you, I tend to get into trouble. Now, maybe that's not helpful to explain. Um, But we can be shy of making it obvious. We've actually decided to change. We've decided to do something. We've decided to put something to death. Is that just setting us up to fail? No, I don't think so. It's not about relying on our willpower to achieve something. What's happening here is people have discovered hope. God's desire is to have a fruitful family. And so there is this repentance, but it's fruitful. There's promise there. This is leading forwards. This is not a dead end of condemnation and guilt. This is leading through condemnation and guilt, out the other side, into the life that God's always had for us and the fruit that he wants us to bear. It's repentance that is faith-filled because we've allowed the word of God to impact us and we're being nourished by that. And it's repentance that is focused on the things that need to be chopped down. I think that the future is incredibly promising. I think the future is incredibly exciting when a people get together and say, today is the day for radical repentance. I think the future is incredibly encouraging for you personally. If you take hold of the opportunity today to chop down sin. Maybe God has just been poking you, prodding you, whispering you. The God who's compassionate, the God who's gentle, the God who's got tender mercies and is saying, no, come this way. Put that to death. Come back to me. Follow me. That's what Nehemiah did. And a few months later, he's hundreds of miles away in a different city, serving the purposes of God in an amazing way. And might that be the case in this room? Ideas that have not even sprung to mind yet, or maybe plans that are there for university or whatever when September comes. You think, just a few months down the line, God bearing fruit in the life of someone who has chosen to repent radically. Or perhaps like the people, it doesn't involve a big move. It's in life in the here and now, in this place, in this community, serving God in ways I had not imagined, I had not envisaged, because I cleared the way. Or with God's help, he helped me to prepare, clear the deck, get right, chop it down, so that we can then move forward. Either way let's not miss the opportunity today to take part in a day of radical repentance I don't know exactly how that we will action that today as a people we're going to worship God and so actually perhaps if the band want to come up that would be great we're going to to worship God now when the people were confessing their sin it wasn't wallowing in self-pity it was actually an act of worship and so As we worship God, as we fix our eyes on who God is and what He is like, it can be an act of faith to acknowledge who I am and what I've been like and what are the areas, maybe the key areas, might not be five of them, but if we're honest, there's probably going to be some of them where you think today, I don't want to just nail it. I don't want to give it a label. I don't want us to be aware. It's coming down. It's getting off. This tree has a future without that stuff growing up around it. Are you excited by the possibility? No. The certainty of the fruit that comes as we repent of sin. Why don't we stand? We're going to worship God. We'll see how he leads us.